about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 485. I have no idea what part of our COVID-19 vaccine show this is, but... <laughs> Seven? Eight? 97? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I do know that Sarah has put in a minimum of 15 hours of research this weekend pulling the show together, not to mention how much knowledge you needed to have as a base to do that, um, as well as 13 pages of notes. So I'm pretty sure this is going to end up being a two-part show as we dive into what our audience, what you listeners have been asking for so much, which is um, the science on the vaccines for children and boosters for adults. Now, if you haven't listened to our foundation shows on COVID-19 vaccines, please go back and listen to the earlier ones. I know we're going to reference more information in certain shows throughout this show, um, but let's say it was six months ago, there was a lot of science you might want to go back and revisit some of that. Um, but if you haven't listened to it at all, I would strongly recommend it just because I myself was vaccine hesitant before we did those shows. And we lay down the science without an opinion or a recommendation for you so that you can be informed and make your own choice. And that is how we approach every show. And I know that we're going to do the same here. Uh, but understanding that a lot has happened since those original shows and um, what we decide for ourselves and our family, our children is obviously our own decision. And you need to make that for yourself. And also a reminder that we are not medical professionals. And we would highly recommend that you do so in conversation with your doctor. Um, but beyond that, we're going to be sharing the science on, for example, why do we need so many boosters? And um, is it safe for children? Um, or why, you know, has was it done so quickly? You know, all that kind of stuff. So, and then before we even jump into all of that, I also want to say that we're recording this on the 30th of November. And yesterday, um, the news exploded about a new variant. And so... We're going to be talking about boosters and the need for boosters and what I have been able to do research on. And Sarah, you're going to dive so much more deeper than this into me. But I did do some preliminary research myself so that I can come slightly educated to these shows, um, is that it looks like the boosters are a really great way to um, at least protect yourself if you're worried about this new variant. We don't have the full research yet, but um, talking about the boosters is actually linked to that new variant, even though we're not going to talk about it, right? So... Is there anything else you want to say on that before we dive into the rest of the stuff? Uh, I mean, other than we will definitely talk about Omicron once there's actually anything to talk about about it, um, if that makes any sense. Like it right now, all like we know Marvel... is that it has. Sorry? It sounds like a Marvel villain. I haven't heard it like pronounced that many times. And when you said Omicron, I'm like, that sounds like a a villain. I know that it's um, a Greek letter, but. I think because my bachelor's degree is in physics and there's so many <laughs> Greek letters in physics formulas 
for me, all I think of is, oh, it's just the letter O. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this like super like, eh, it's Omicron. It's the letter O. We had mu, we had new, right? M, N. Now we're ready for O. Next one will be Rho. It's, it just, yeah, it's funny how like that the context changes based on experience with Greek letters, I guess. Um, but, uh, but yeah, all we can really say about it right now is that it has an unusually high n- number of mutations. And we know what some of those mutations imply. We don't know what those mutations do together. And we, at this point, just need more data to really know anything, to be able to say anything uh, really concrete. So I, I know certainly I'm very frustrated with the number of news stories with headlines that are, you know, very alarmist and then articles that say, and we don't know anything about this particular variant other than it has a lot of mutations and that's why it's concerning and why it was labeled a variant of concern, but we actually don't know anything about transmissibility or severity of disease or whether or not it can escape um, uh, antibody protection. So, when we know something, we will definitely do a show on it. But for right now, we don't know a whole lot about Omicron. And I don't like talking about things I don't know about or that nobody knows about, which is the case here. Hence why we focus on the science and research. And it took us a while to get the booster and the vaccine for children show for you because um, it's an intense amount of work to pull these together. So just, you know. Thank you, Sarah, for doing this, for taking one for the team yet again. And um, I'm excited to learn and to ask you all kinds of annoying questions. You ready to dive in? <laughs> yes. Well, on that note, let's, let's do Aren't it. Aren't you ready? Aren't you excited? <laughs> <laughs> we actually have some great listener questions to help, I think, uh, drive the conversation here. So I wanted to start with a question from Kate. Um, And Kate wrote, I wanted to say I listened to every COVID-19 vaccine podcast. It was so good. I got the J&J. I'm so grateful for the research and thought and time y'all put into it to help me have peace of mind and educate myself. I was in bed sick for seven days recovering from the vaccine, and I'm interested in the booster. I am wondering if y'all are going to do another podcast on it. I am positive y'all probably got death threats, which is just horrifying. But for folks like me who want to know the science balanced with a holistic mindset, it's a true gift what you give to this holistic community. Okay, I'm tearing up over here. Yes, I had a rough week recovering from the vaccine, and I know I needed to get it, and I don't regret it. But there's not much talk about the booster. Would love your research and findings. Thank you all for the work you do. Truly so thankful. Kate. It's really cute hearing your, like, North Canadian accent say the word y'all over and over again. Um, Kate, I love your question and all the compliments and nice words. And uh, I also want to echo what Kate said, which is that, you know, our approach to understanding that our goal is health and we talk about immunity and things that you can do to support your immune system on a regular basis, that is still going to be a recommendation no matter what as is supported by the science that we've shared, you know, on those shows. But when it comes to the science of modern medicine, we also want to approach this with as much information as we can, as is provided in the research, and give people comfort to make whatever decision it is they're going to make. So 
I am positive because I'm looking at the notes that you have data on the pictures. Are you ready to share? So much data. So much graphs, data. <laughs> numbers, uh, references, and as usual, all of the um, citations that we discuss in our episodes are all going to be included in the show notes. So if you want to dig deeper into any particular a topic that we cover or data point that we cover, we always have all of the references in our show notes. So I think the place to start answering Kate's question is the question of, do we need boosters? And it's interesting because when you, there's different ways to look at the data that went into the FDA approval for boosters and the CDC uh, recommendation for boosters that actually just changed yesterday from everyone may get boosters to everyone should get boosters, uh, which is very, very strong language from the CDC. But that is, of course, in light of Omicron, which we'll discuss why a booster may be protective and why that recommendation makes sense in a little bit. But the data that went into the consideration um, some of the most compelling data came out of Israel. Now, Israel has one of the world's highest vaccination rates, and they had one of the best vaccine rollouts. So they also have had a larger percentage of their population vaccinated very early. And so watching what is happening in Israel is, uh, it's because they were so early and so effective with their vaccine rollout, it, it gives us some really interesting data to look at that we wouldn't really be able to get in other countries that were a little bit slower to get the vaccines out because Israel just has a few month head start on everybody. So they compared data from looking at infections from December 2020 to July 2021, and they estimated that the protection against uh, just symptomatic infection or testing positive dropped from about 90% in the early months after their vaccine rollout to about 40% by late June. That could be driven by that is the same time frame as the Delta variant uh, being able to take, take over, right? And the Delta variant obviously was uh, a lot more contagious. And even though the vaccines are incredibly protective against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, they weren't as protective against symptomatic infections. And we we talked about the Delta variant at length in episode 468, including the rates of breakthrough infections that were known at the time that we recorded that. Um, but they were also able to look at people who were vaccinated sort of between January and April and show that the people who were vaccinated in January and February were 53% more likely to test positive during that four-month time frame that they were looking at compared to the ones who were vaccinated in March and April. So just looking at that two-month time difference, the, the earliest two months getting vaccinated and then the next cohort of people getting vaccinated, there's a lot of things that could go into that um, that it may reflect waning protection. Um, the most common vaccine used in Israel is the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but it also could reflect a change in behavior. So in the early months when people were fully vaccinated, the recommendations were 
you don't need to worry about masks, life is normal. And then when the Delta variant came on the scene and we understood breakthrough infections more carefully, behavior changed. And we went, oh, actually, <laughs> the be best practices is still wear masks indoors, right? Still um, practice social distancing outside. And so what could be driving that increased risk could be waning protection, or it could be behavior, or it could be an effective variant, or it could be a, most likely it's actually a mix of all of the above. We can combine that data with the data that has come out of both Pfizer and Moderna's clinical trials, where they've continued to follow the people in their clinical trials and monitor for infections, for um, adverse events, for um, they've been measuring antibodies and looking at uh, how the the antibody protection is dropping off over time. And what Pfizer did over the summer was they released data showing that their vaccine protected against symptomatic disease that, that had dropped off uh, over the first six months from 96% protection against symptomatic disease to 84%. Um, and that was in the sort of pre-Delta timeframe. Moderna had uh, less drop-off. So they, around the same time, had a press release where they said that after six months that their uh, their drop-off went from 94% to 90%. So a little bit of drop-off in protection. And again, that's all sort of pre-Delta uh, variant effect. There's also some reasons why we might expect Pfizer to have uh, a faster drop-off in protection. So the Moderna dose of mRNA is higher than the Pfizer dose. So Moderna delivers 100 micrograms of mRNA versus Pfizer's 30 micrograms. And also Pfizer's three weeks between shots, Moderna's four weeks between shots. And um, that slightly longer time frame with the Moderna may lead to a larger pool of memory cells, which basically means longer lasting immunity. There was also a CDC study of frontline workers that looked at vaccine effectiveness, and this was during Delta times. So pre-Delta, um, they found the vaccines, and this was a mix of all vaccines that were available, were 91% effective at preventing symptomatic infections. That dropped down to 66% after Delta variant became dominant. So these are all the different like disparate pieces of information that went into the calculation of, you know, is there waning immunity? Do we need a booster? And it's not actually super compelling data for waning immunity. We also know that the vaccines have been, have remained incredibly effective at preventing hospitalization and death and protecting against that. And there doesn't seem to be a drop off in that protection, what there seems to be is reduced protection against symptomatic infection. And again, it's complex. It, we can see that there's some gradually reducing levels of antibodies in people's blood, but antibodies are just one part of our immune defense. And that's expected. When you get any vaccine, you have antibodies that are elevated for a period of time and over you know, months, they'll slowly come down. And then what's protecting you is the memory cells that are able to recognize 
the infection quickly and then produce antibodies if you're exposed to the infection. So just seeing antibodies go down in our blood by itself is not really, you can't really extrapolate that to reduced immunity because that's the immune system isn't just pumping out antibodies to everything it's ever seen all the time. Instead, the cells that know how to make those antibodies are hanging out in the spleen waiting to be exposed to that its particular you know pathogen antigen and then it'll start they'll start making antibodies again. So the data on waning immunity, there's definitely some reasons to think maybe um, and maybe more so with Pfizer than moderna. but even just biologically, there are some really compelling reasons to boost. So the scientific rationale for boosters is partly the biology of the immune system, which I'll talk about next, and partly this data that shows that maybe the the rates of breakthrough infections are increasing over time. But again, acknowledging that it's a complex system, that it may also have to do with human behavior, that it may also be largely driven by variants of concern like Delta. But biologically, just thinking about it from a, a what we know about how the immune system works, every time we're exposed to, to something. So when there are m- multiple vaccines that are uh, three dose or, or more um, in order to reach full immunization. And they're typically timed more like six months apart because when you hit the immune system again, what happens with that booster dose is it, I mean, it boosts the immune system. So, so when we give that third dose, or if we're talking about another immunization course, maybe it's the fourth dose. Um, It's every dose after the first one, the first one sort of teaching the immune system what the thing is. And then every dose afterwards is about reinforcing the immunological memory. So when we're vaccinated, you get this initial surge in the number of immune cells that are turning out antibodies, other um, molecules that help to protect against infection. And then we have these memory cells that just hang out in the body. When you get the booster, what happens is you cause those memory cells that can make antibodies, the B cells, to start to multiply. And that elevates levels of antibodies against the pathogen again. They will slowly come down again, but then what will happen is the pool of memory cells will be larger. And the more memory cells there are, the faster of a response we can mount uh, when we're exposed to that pathogen in the future. And then there's also this additional effect when we get a second, third, fourth dose of any vaccination. So anything that would be considered a booster is there's a process called affinity maturation. So when those B cells, uh, you know, are engaged, they're triggered by the vaccine, they start turning out the antibodies, they travel to the lymph nodes. And what happens is they basically start to gain mutations in the lymph nodes, good, good mutations in this case, that make the antibodies that they produce 
bind more strongly to the pathogen. So every time they're exposed, they basically get smarter and make better antibodies to actually increase the the potency, basically, of those antibodies. So after that boost, you have a higher level of memory cells that produce even better antibodies at binding against that pathogen. And the way that normal vaccine courses are figured out is they basically look for how many times you need to be exposed to that particular antigen, that thing that you're trying to become immune to, before the number of B cells and the antibody levels will basically plateau. So you won't actually get a boost. You've basically hit the maximum level of immunological memory when you get boosted. And it's very unlikely that the two two doses of the mRNA vaccines or one or two doses of the various adenovirus vaccines that are available globally will have us reach that, that level, especially with a one-month time frame between those two doses. So just knowing that piece of information of how the immune system works and how vaccines work makes a really good like scientific argument for a booster. And what we know about the immune system is six months is a really, really good amount of time to kind of challenge it again to be able to build that more robust immunological memory. So when we look at all of the data together, we can say, okay, you know, there, there may be um, there may be a drop in immunity. Certainly the data on um, immunocompromised people shows that a third dose is likely required to hit the same level of immunity as healthy people get in two doses. We talked about that also in episode 468. Um, but what we know is that for the rest of us, just understanding the biology of the immune system makes a really good rationale for boosters. It helps us get ahead of waning protection. So if there is a slow drop off, we're going to stay ahead of it with this um, approach. Uh, the studies show at least a tenfold increase in neutralizing antibodies. And this is where it becomes uh, a strategy that is is uh, being implemented now to hopefully stay ahead of Omicron is, you know, when we, we talked about this again in episode 468, that the antibodies that we make when we're vaccinated have different, what's called a binding affinity to different variants. So it means that the neutralizing antibodies that our bodies are making when we're vaccinated, or even if we've had a previous infection, bind with different strengths to different strains. And it was one of the good news pieces that we talked about in episode 468, 468 that they bond pretty strongly to Delta. Um, for example, the Alpha variant actually had lower binding affinities than, than Delta did. And we don't know right now what the binding affinity of the antibodies that we're making when we get vaccinated is going to be to Omicron, but the mutations would predict that it would be somewhat lower. So one of the easiest ways to make up for that, and one of the ways that we have access to right now, is to just have a lot more antibodies. So when we have 10 times more antibodies, then we have so many more antibodies to bind. So even though they don't bind as strongly, we have more of them to bind. So that's how the booster can be protective against variants of concern that may not have an exact sort of match with the antibodies that we're making against the vaccine. Just having more antibodies by itself makes up for it. So 
all of these are the rationales that went behind the the approval of of the boosters. One of the questions that I get often, and also um, I believe that Kate would ask, because um, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine in particular didn't originally have a booster, right? Whereas some others did. So how are these confirmed? as like working together or being safe or, I mean, I'm assuming there's clinical trials, but like, how does that actually come together? Yeah. So there's actually a lot of clinical trials uh, looking at how the boosters um, impact the immune system, looking at side effects, looking at adverse events. Um, So looking at their safety profile and their efficacy profile, which of course was the main focus of all of our other previous vaccine shows. So the the major manufacturers, Moderna, Pfizer-BioNTech, Oxford-AstraZeneca, um, also Sinovac, Johnson & Johnson, they have all done um, studies. So for J&J, it was with a second dose. For all of the other manufacturers that were already two doses for their main course, it was looking at a third dose. And they've all shown a, a huge increase in those neutralizing antibodies following a third dose. They've all shown side effects sort of comparable to the initial series, which we'll, we'll get into in more detail. Um, and they, um, they also, you know, for example, the Pfizer data, um, when they compare how, what's happening to antibodies following the first dose and the second dose compared to the third dose, they can see a decrease in antibodies even in the first month after that second dose. And what they're seeing after the third dose is more stable antibody levels. Um, And that's in various age groups. So even in their older age group of 65 to 85, they're still seeing that more stable level of antibodies, which is exactly what you would predict knowing what we know about how the immune system works, that you're going to have an increased pool of memory cells, you're going to have a longer time frame with this increased level of antibodies, and you're going to have a more rapid response upon exposure. And the the increase in um, antibody levels can be very, very high. So all of the manufacturers have studied additional doses of their own. So uh, basically, right, Moderna boosting with Moderna, Pfizer boosting with Pfizer, um, J&J boosting with J&J. And then we, we can also talk about the mix and match study because I think that's also has some really fascinating data and especially some data that's very relevant for Kate, I think. Um, but for example, before we get there, the Moderna uh, trial looking at giving a third dose at least six months from the second dose had up to a 44-fold increase in neutralizing antibodies, which is huge. And that's why um, the they can show like how much that binds to different variants of the coronavirus. And they can show that basically with that booster, you're getting the same level of binding to something like beta or gamma or delta compared to the original virus following just the two doses. So that that is, again, sort of confirming exactly what we would expect f- from just thinking about it in biological terms, that even though the antibodies don't bind as strongly 
to those variants, when you have that many more antibodies, you can still effectively neutralize them because you've got a much, much bigger pool of antibodies. So I think there's some important things to keep in mind with all of these studies. Certainly, it's more important for unvaccinated people to get the information that they need to feel comfortable getting vaccinated um, or to talk with their doctors and find out if they have a medical concern that would indicate that they shouldn't get vaccinated. That's actually going to be more important for controlling the spread of COVID than it is for fully vaccinated people to get boosted. But boosters are important for anyone at higher risk of severe COVID or higher risk of exposure. That's why that was the initial recommendation from the FDA and the CDC. And I think it's also helpful to know that right now doses are getting thrown out in America. If you skip your booster, it's not going to go to somebody who is unvaccinated and doesn't want it. It's not going to get shipped to a country that that needs it. Um, the, the batches are different. So uh, the United States of America has shipped almost 300 million doses worldwide, and then it has a separate pool of doses that are being shipped throughout the country. And um, and it's there's there's not a mechanism to say, oh, I'm going to skip my booster. You know, please send it to Africa. That's that's not a thing that's going to happen. Obviously, we've talked about it on the show before. This isn't over until the whole world is protected, and I think that's been the main reason for the level of worry over the Omicron variant. Um, it's also helpful to know that everyone is still considered fully vaccinated two weeks after their second dose in a, in a two-shot series. So this booster is considered a booster, not part of the main series. So if you if you do a two-shot series like Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna, your two shots does call you fully vaccinated. Um, but the the rationale for a booster in terms of protection against variants and uh, in terms of long-term protection is very compelling. Right? For, for me as a medical biophysicist, I look at that data and I go, hmm, yep. Today's podcast is sponsored by Anna Luisa, a sustainable jewelry brand I have been loving. Anna Luisa believes high-quality jewelry shouldn't cost the planet. Finding a jewelry brand that is certified carbon neutral, uses recycled materials, and wears like luxury is pure gold. Oh, really? Another pun? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, finding high-quality jewelry that is ethical and good for our planet means we can feel good about wearing it. I've been overhauling my jewelry collection for a few years, replacing everything with high quality because I have a nickel allergy and Ana Luisa fits everything I'm looking for. Okay, so my earrings arrived and I love them so much. I am currently wearing the Tota, the Suzanne and the Suzanne medium because I have six ear piercings, but they look so amazing with one another. I definitely recommend buying them together for anyone with multiple piercings. I am all about ear candy. I definitely want to see a picture of that. I myself have been wearing the Hannah Collage hoop earrings almost every day since I got them. They're like a Matisse painting. They're the perfect size and they go with everything and they're super comfortable and don't irritate me at all. I also love how affordable these pieces are too, even gemstones and diamonds. 
The pieces are timeless, chic enough for every day, or conscious luxury you can dress up. Yes, I got a couple as gifts too because they're having an awesome BOGO deal right now. I absolutely recommend checking out Ana Luisa. That's shop.analuisa.com slash wholeview. I love them. Their pieces start at $39 and they are currently running the biggest sale of the year. You can get 60% off your second item if you go to shop.analuisa.com slash wholeview. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, which we both use and have loved for years. I love that we're able to offer such a great deal for you listeners. A free pack of bacon in every box, plus $20 off each box for the first five months of your membership. I have never seen a discounted membership like this before. That's free bacon for life and up to $100 off. I love that they're offering that to you, our listeners, especially with free bacon. You know, I happen to have wrote the book on that. Yes, and listeners can go beyond bacon with all the humane and sustainably raised meat that ships for free, frozen for freshness, and packed in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box right to your door. I should have seen that pun coming. If you haven't heard of ButcherBox before, or maybe you don't believe it could actually be that good or eco-friendly to deliver meat, ButcherBox is a certified B Corp, so you know they're doing right by people and the planet. And let me tell you, their meat is legit. It has been essential for our family these last few years. Almost all of the meat and seafood we eat comes from ButcherBox. We are able to adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping. It's all super simple on their site with a variety of boxes to choose from, including a custom box, which is what we do. And you'll get yours with that $20 off, enough to add on a bonus if you want, like a roast for the upcoming holidays. I love that they source meat and seafood from partners with the highest standards for quality. That means higher levels of important nutrients. For example, the conjugated linoleic acid content of grass-fed beef is up to 500% higher than grain-fed. And it has more omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. You get the point. ButcherBox is focused on quality. That's what I heard you say through all of that. Maybe you might be trying out for a job as an auctioneer or something. But (laughs) um, the quality of the animal and the planet. So you can be assured that the beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood. And it tastes good. This holiday, ButcherBox is giving new members one pack of bacon for free in every box, plus $20 off each box for the first five months of your membership. That's free bacon for life and up to $100 off. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash wholeview. That's butcherbox.com slash wholeview. I think what's fascinating for me um, as someone who had COVID early on is this idea of um, that was an additional exposure, kind of like a booster is an additional exposure. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the information that I'm seeing out there um, groups people into like, okay, if you had one shot like Johnson and Johnson versus if you have Johnson and Johnson and booster versus if you have, you know, your two shots of Moderna, or if you've had your two shots of Moderna plus a booster, or if you've had your two shots of Moderna plus you had it, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's at this point so many different variations because so many people 
have been exposed, unfortunately. And hopefully people who are being exposed after they've been vaccinated aren't going to have the long hauler and other issues that we've talked about on the show before that, you know, I've been dealing with. But I'm curious if there's scientific information and research specific to whether the vaccine immunity is better than the natural immunity and or a combination, right? I've heard some people say that the combination of both is the strongest protection. Like, is there science yet on that? Yeah. So really interestingly, there's not good science on the combination. Um, So looking at how long you may have protection if your boost, I'm using air quotes around this, was a breakthrough infection, that hasn't been studied as um, in terms of how robust your, your immunity is going to be afterwards. But what has been studied is the more black and white. So comparing uh, the uh, natural immunity, so the immunity that you would get from having a COVID-19 infection versus vaccine immunity. So what is the likelihood of a breakthrough infection versus a second infection with COVID-19? Um, and there was a, a really quite a big deal study that just came out, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, where they compared people who were hospitalized had to be eight, at least 18 year olds, years old. And they looked at people who had either had been vaccinated between 90 and 179, less than six months. Um, so between three and six months earlier versus people who had had a COVID-19 infection in that same time range. So just looking three to six months post-vaccination or post-infection, and then looked at uh, what was the likelihood between those two groups of um, people having a, another COVID-19 infection, right? Either a breakthrough or a second infection. And the people who were unvaccinated but who had had COVID-19 were 5.49-fold higher uh, chances of getting COVID-19 than fully vaccinated people with, and this was specifically, they were looking at the mRNA vaccines. So five and a half times higher risk of getting a second infection with natural immunity than getting a breakthrough infection with vaccine-induced immunity. That's significant. And it would also explain, I know we're not going to go into Omicron, but like the preliminary guesswork, right, that people are doing on it being more susceptible for people who have only natural immunity versus are fully vaccinated and or with boosters like that. That would also explain it if we're seeing it in the science even before Omicron was out. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, so I will say we actually talked about this way back in episode 441, which was our very first episode where we talked about the mRNA vaccines one of the things that I talked about in that episode was the thing that makes SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, so sinister is that it has multiple ways that it can manipulate our immune responses. So, for example, one of the things that I talked about in that episode was that this virus can actually reduce our expression of a really important uh, family of cytokines for our immune response against viruses called interferons. And so one of the things that the 
novel coronavirus does is actually interfere with our immune response. And that is potentially one of the reasons why natural immunity doesn't last very long. We actually talked about on the show previously that immunity against other types of coronaviruses uh, ranges. So the immunity against uh, SARS-CoV, the original, the the 2002-2003 SARS um, pandemic was at least five or six years. Um, obviously, that that virus was much easier to control with public health measures, which is why it didn't become the the type of thing that we're going through now. Um, but it, uh, it there definitely seemed to be a limit to how long natural immunity lasted. And then we also looked at these studies looking at the common cold causing coronaviruses, showing that immunity in, for those lasted maybe a year or two. And that's one of the reasons why you can you're, you can feel like you're getting the same cold over and over again year after year. You you may be, it may be the, actually the same common cold causing coronavirus. So there were reasons to predict that natural immunity against COVID-19 may be time limited and it may drop off over time. There were some early studies showing that the antibody response four months out of a vaccine was higher than four months out of natural infection. So this isn't actually a huge surprise, um, but it's also, again, data to confirm that given the option, the vaccines are going to provide a more robust and frankly safer immune response and immunological memory to, to COVID-19 than taking our chances with getting infected. Yeah, I wouldn't take your chances. It's it's not so great. Just personal experience there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, not, not the, recommended. Long COVID, the long COVID is the, I have to say that is, that that's the thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. That's, oh, I mean, that's one word too. for it. That's one yeah. word for it. Okay, so safety, right? I think we've yeah. we've kind of established the why. It's important. Um, I think the struggle that we all have, and Kate had in her question, right, is, um, you know, the safety in terms of like, are we, is it building up in us and that sort of thing? Um, and I think we should probably also mention, you know, reaction or our personal experiences having boosters. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I don't have that experience for Kate because I didn't get the Johnson and Johnson, but you and I have both had boosters. Um, you get, I had the Moderna. I think you had the Moderna as well. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about that experience. Um, and I know we'll get into a little bit about our, our booster safe um, I will say Matt and I both are scheduled to get ours on Thursday. So <laughs> I'm getting mine on Friday. <laughs> mine's mine's scheduled for, you know, making sure I'm, I'm learning all the science here. Um, but, you know, it, even though we have had COVID, so we've had, you know, an additional exposure, it, that is only more reason for us to be like, yeah, we don't want to go through that again, yeah. you know? So, um, but again, that's our personal decision. Um, and I think once you kind of share this information about the safety and the risks and that kind of stuff, people can, can make their own decisions as well. So you ready to jump into that? Yeah, for sure. So again, this has been studied in the clinical trials. And one of the things that we've learned with the ongoing monitoring, so that's also something we talked about on the podcast before, is that the 
for very, very rare serious adverse events, you don't expect those signals to show up in even the really big clinical trials that that were done on looking at safety and efficacy of these um, vaccines. Um, But they have been monitored and identified through uh, community monitoring, which which is something that is, it's very important that when you get your vaccine, that you sign up for vSafe and they send you little text messages every day and ask you how you're feeling and they'll call you if they're worried about you um, or suggest that you go see a doctor. Um, And there's also a adverse event reporting system, VA Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, V-A-E-R-S, um, which is another system for reporting anything that happens. And those are really important. It's really important to report it if you have no side effects whatsoever. And it's really important to report it if you have grade two, grade three, or grade four side effects, because that is how, for example, the immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia was um, was discovered, was through those reporting systems. So uh, we've talked about, again, we've talked about these rare, um, serious adverse effects on the podcast before. I think the thing to sort of talk about is what we know about that and the booster and also um, side effects and what we know about side effects with that, with that third shot. So the studies have all been done. We've got, we'll have links in the, the show notes. And the rate of side effects for that third shot are pretty close to identical to the rate of side effects for the first two shots. And um, for the different, right, so for Pfizer and Moderna, they're a little bit different. So for example, Pfizer, the most common side effect is going to be fatigue. So after the second shot, 61.5% of people had fatigue. After that third shot, 63.7% had fatigue. After that first shot, 54% had a headache. After the third, 48.4% had a headache. Um, Actually, fever was 16.4% after the second shot and only 8.7% after the third shot. Um, and uh, the other side effects were, again, sort of like chills, a little bit lower after the third, 29.1% compared to 37.8%. Uh, vomiting is a very unusual side effect, so 2.2% after the second dose, 1.7% after the third. Uh, muscle pain, almost identical, 39.3% versus 39.1%. Joint pain, also very similar, 23.8% versus 25.3%. So looking at it from a side effect perspective, the the frequency is almost identical. Um, and Moderna did some similar, um, similar comparisons and showed slightly so the moderna booster is a half dose and they're showing a slightly lower um side effect frequency across all of their side effects so fever is seven percent after the booster compared to 16 percent headache is 55 percent after the booster compared to 59 percent fatigue 59 percent after the booster compared to 65 percent Muscle pain, 49% after the booster compared to 58. Uh, joint pain, 41% compared to 43. Those numbers are pretty much identical. Um, and the percentages within that that are grade one, mild, grade two, 
moderate, grade three, really unpleasant, but not medically serious. Grade four, almost no, there was almost no grade four side effects, which would be bad enough that it requires you, that you would go seek medical intervention. Um, so again, their, their side effects were pretty comparable after that third shot compared to the second, and the studies showed no serious adverse events or deaths from the boosters. So basically, all that data together is side effect profiles are very similar, maybe in some side effects, slightly better, um, or at least a, a slightly lower risk that you'll you'll have it. Um, and then looking at the, the very rare um, occurrences like Guillain-Barre, immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia um, that have both come up with, with the adenovirus vectors or the myocarditis um, and severe allergic reactions that have come up with the mRNA um, vaccines, um, the safety profile looks identical. So I think it's worth, even though we did, we've done a, a sort of a big deep dive. We talked about uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome in episode 440. And we talked at length about immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia in episode 454. Um, it's helpful to just kind of go through what these potential risks are. I mean, we started this entire series in episode 440 by talking about um, vaccine injury and the very, very low risks and how often the risk of uh, some particular complication of vaccine is lower than the risk of that same complication from natural infection. Um, but I think it's still like, I, I feel like it's very important to be really upfront about these risks. So the um, Johnson and Johnson and Janssen, uh, the adenovirus um, does include these incredibly rare risks of um, especially uh, immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And so the highest risk group for that are um, men between the ages of 50 and 64 for Guillain-Barre syndrome and for immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, women between the ages of 18 and 49. And as we talked about in episode 454, the most important piece of this is um, to be aware of the symptoms and to, for medical personnel to be aware of, to look for that because it is treatable. Um, the, the problem is, is that you don't want to misdiagnose immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia because if you give it the normal um, sort of anticoagulant treatment that you would give other types of blood clots, that's the thing that can be life-threatening. So um, this is a well-established, very, very, very rare risk. Um, one of the things that we didn't cover, uh, we did a little bit on episode 443 and our first Patreon Q&A, but we didn't talk a lot about the myocarditis risk, and there is more data on that. So I think it's helpful to, to go through that in a little bit more depth. But if you're thinking about, uh, concerned about, if you've had Guillain-Barre syndrome um, in response to a vaccine before, that would be a contraindication for one of the adenovirus vaccines. And if you've had uh, immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia before, um, that obviously is a contraindication as well. Um, if those are concerns for you, we talked about all the risk factors that might predispose somebody to that beyond just age and gender in episode 454. So 
myocarditis. We, um, the myocarditis risk has cropped up in younger people. So the highest um, risk for myocarditis is um, men, young men between the ages of 12 and 29. And there is accumulating data showing that it might be slightly higher following the Moderna vaccine. Granted, those are only approved for 18 and over compared to the Pfizer vaccine. We can't compare, obviously, in the 12 to 17 age group, um, but that's not confirmed yet. But the, the science has shown pretty conclusively that the risk of myocarditis from COVID-19 infection is higher than the risk from COVID-19 vaccination. So researchers have done now some pretty extensive analysis. We kind of talked about the preliminary data to this effect, uh, I think, in our first Patreon Q&A, but, um, but there's now more conclusive data. So they have found that these same age groups um, are getting myocarditis as a complication of COVID-19 at a rate of about 450 cases per million infections. And the rate um, associated with the mRNA vaccines is a fraction of that at only 77 cases per million. Um, so that actually we can we can show that, and that's combining uh, combining the rate from both vaccines from from two doses, so we can we can say from that that the the vaccines are actually potentially reducing the the incidence of myocarditis compared to not vaccinating that population. Um, so the 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 increased risk of myocarditis from COVID nineteen is uh, approximately uh, 18 fold. The risk difference is considered 11 people per 100,000. So though that's how many occurrences of myocarditis could be saved with vaccination compared to um, not taking precautions against COVID-19 infection. So again, um, this is very similar to the lengthy discussion that we had about vaccine injury in episode 440, where often we see there's something similar about how the immune system is activated in after vaccination compared to natural infection, which is expected because we are trying to vaccinate against that particular infectious disease. And because of that, some of the severe adverse events overlap with possible severe complications of that disease. And again, kind of like all of the data we went through in episode 440, we see reduced risk from vaccination compared to getting infected with that chronic illness. Is there or, any... Sorry, infectious disease. Oh, no. Yeah. I can't even decipher the difference. So good on you. <laughs> like, um, I'm wondering if there is any research or information on um, genetic disposition to heart issues. I don't want to say heart disease, right? Because it wouldn't be identified in someone 12 to 29 years old, but um, like in the family, like genetically or somewhere like that, because if it were me, for example, and we had heart problems that ran in the family, I would definitely be talking to 
my pediatrician, my doctors around the the true like risk and understanding of this. But like you said, my personal decision also very much goes into what is the likelihood and risk in a vaccine versus if they don't get the vaccine and are exposed to the actual virus, right? And so as a parent, especially because this has been around for almost two years at this point, I have to ask myself, like, what would I feel more guilty about or what what is more of a concern for me um, in that in that bracket? Because obviously, I'm as much as I would like to believe it, no longer in the 12 to 29-year-old category, but I have many children who are. Yeah, so myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle, um, and I, I don't, I'm not familiar with risk factors for myocarditis outside of infection because I have not had reason to research that. So um, I certainly have not seen in these papers that have looked at myocarditis as a serious adverse event following vaccination. I haven't seen breakdowns of whether or not people with certain heart conditions are more susceptible, but of course, in a younger population who are at higher risk, there's not a whole high, you know, percentage of those young men who have heart, pre-existing heart conditions. So I don't know that there's necessarily enough data to to decipher that yet. Um, but again, you know, this is one of the most important things that each one of us can do as individuals is if we have concerns that are specifically related to our own health history, is talk to our doctors about whether or not our concerns mean we should get one vaccine versus another or skip the vaccine altogether. Um, that is one of the most important things we can do because all we can do on this podcast is look at these big data sets and what are the percentages, right? What are What are the, you know, what is the risk of this versus the risk of that? Again, looking at you know, large, large groups of people in that are grouped together in these studies, we, we can't then always extrapolate to every single individual collection of health concerns. But that is something that your doctor can do. Your doctor can look at your medical history and your concerns, and then apply what's known from these studies. The, the big studies uh, looking at the safety and efficacy of the vaccines have done actually a, a pretty good job of taking a very wide cross-section of people, including, um, you know, balance in genders and race and ethnicity, as well as pre-existing conditions. But the focus has been on pre-existing conditions that are known to increase risk of severe COVID. And they haven't necessarily, you know, gone through, for example, and, um, and done a s separate statistical analysis on people with autoimmune conditions because uh, autoimmune disease is only considered an increased risk for severe COVID if you're taking immunosuppressant drugs. So people taking immunosuppressant drugs is uh, analyzed separately, but not all autoimmune diseases. So again, unless it's something that has been previously identified as a risk factor for severe COVID, they're not necessarily doing statistics on all of those different conditions in the studies. 
but they are still including like there is a master data set somewhere with every single thing and every single person's medical chart because it was all recorded and that does allow again for community monitoring at this point um given the um you know, hundreds of millions of, of people globally who have been vaccinated, it is expected that all of the rare adverse um, events have been identified because it's such a huge data. Like now the data set is global and humongous. I will also say, because I know my kind of original question was about, um, you know, pers personal history or um, that sort of thing. You know, I didn't really get into my own personal experience with the booster, but I know because it was specific to Kate's question and she didn't feel well for seven days and is worried about the booster. So what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, about the Johnson & Johnson, is that the symptoms that one would expect um, that you talked about um, the percentage of likelihood and, and all that kind of stuff from the second shot of the Pfizer or Moderna booster would be what Kate would have or anyone who experienced the Johnson and Johnson, like those symptoms would happen um, in that one and done, so to say, I'm using quotation marks. So you can't see it because it's a podcast and not a video format, though we do have <laughs> a video format coming for our Patreon soon. So hop over there. Um, <laughs> sidebar. Where was I? I don't know. Um, one and done. That's where I was with a Johnson and Johnson. Is that am I am I making that assumption correct about the how she would have felt being similar to the second shot of Moderna and Pfizer before I continue to go on? So it's hard to know what what has been done in the mix and match study is they've looked at uh, people who had different first series and what their side effects were with uh, a booster. So people who had J&J &J for their first shot, if they had either a J&J &J for a booster or a Pfizer or Moderna booster, and then every possible different iteration between what you got for the first time and what you got as a booster. And they looked at the rates of side effects, but they didn't do what's called paired analysis. So they didn't look, they just looked at total rate of side effects um, given the different boosters. They didn't look at if you had, um, you know, Kate's, Kate, the description that Kate gave us makes it sound like grade three side effects. So if you had grade three side effects from uh, your first shot, whatever it is, what the likelihood would be of getting grade three side effects from an additional dose and an additional dose of the same one versus a different one. So that is still unknown. What is known is the risk of side effects with the different, uh, the different boosters, but not, uh, but not compared to what your experience was with the first two. So, um, I, I, we can definitely go through that data, and I think that data would be very helpful for Kate. Certainly, you know, the recommendation is if you had a allergic reaction or a, you know, serious adverse effect from one type of vaccine is to not get that one for your booster, right? So if you got it to an mRNA vaccine, go for an adenovirus vector vaccine for your booster. If you got it from adenovirus vector vaccine, go for an mRNA vaccine for your booster. 
The data that does not exist, which uh, would be very helpful, is if you had just really awful side effects from one, is there a good rationale for the other? Or is that just how your immune system is going to react to, you know, having to develop an immune response against coronavirus spike protein, in which case, um, you know, I had also on the more severe side of, of side effects after my second shot, I am getting my third, my booster on Friday when this show actually goes live. Think about me, everybody. Um, and I am preparing for a similar experience. So I'm, you know, batch cooking and clearing my schedule so that if, if it's similar to the second shot that, um, I don't have to get out of bed if I, if I can't. Um, and you know, I will also say like Kate, having had side effects on the more severe end of the spectrum from the second shot, uh, it was a trade that I felt very, very good about doing. As I've said all along, I would do it again in a heartbeat, and here I am scheduled to do it again. And I will say, as someone who has had it and had a vaccine and um, the booster, so, I mean, Matt and I were both down <laughs> for about 24 hours, right? We were just really tired and, and didn't feel great, like muscle soreness. And it felt very similar to having COVID, but about, I don't know, 30% of what that felt like and for a much longer period of time, right? So I don't know exactly when Kate says that she was um, in bed sick for seven days, like, oh, that sucks. I cannot imagine what COVID would have been for Kate like the actual, right? Because what, mm -hmm. what is proposed is that the people who have the higher grade reactions are people who would have had a, a higher um, risk uh, reaction to the actual virus itself, right? Like that's the logically what people it's, are deducing. It's the postulate. Right. Yes. And so to me, as much as it might be awful to feel sick for, you know, another period of time, I very much don't want to get sick for a much longer period of time and be much more sick. And as Sarah mentioned, you know, there is no long COVID with vaccines. So to me, that's also the biggest factor. If you haven't had it yet, like the vaccine is protecting you from that and that like that but trust me, it's no good. <laughs> like it's no yeah. bueno. Um so I, to me, you know, it's the risk and the, the risk and the way that I make my decision is, okay, I am going to spend this week, right, before I get the vaccine, boosting my immunity as much as I can and helping my immune system recover from this exposure of the vaccine booster as much as I can. And maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the things that you and I are doing to help our bodies prepare for that. Because we know that we're exposing our body to something, we can support our system and how it's going to respond to that vaccine. And I'm also going to do it at a time at which it is helpful for me, right? I'm not going to schedule my booster or my vaccine before I need to be doing something. Like I know that Sarah and I were talking before the show about what shows we're going to watch. <laughs> we take yep. our boosters, right? Like, um, 
we're, we're going to plan to be on the sofa and, you know, not expect ourselves to do something because the more you push yourself when your body is fighting any sort of virus or vaccine, um, the less your body has to pour into recovering from it. So, you know, I think if you can do as much as, you know, you're able to support going into this and if you have a health condition that makes you higher risk, definitely talk to your your doctor before you do it to see if they have any, you know, recommendations as well. But, you know, for us, it's, you know, I'm increasing my vitamin C. I'm making sure that I'm taking all of my supplements. I'm getting increased sleep, right? Like Matt and mm-hmm. I have been really strict about going to bed the last few days so that our bodies are, are rested. I'm hydrating. I bought my favorite kind of uh, mineral waters. I don't know if I've told you guys about how obsessed I am with <laughs> mineral water lately, but I got a bunch of mineral water so that I'm super hydrated going into it. Um, and we're making soup, right? We used our turkey carcass to make broth and um, I've been having soup every day all week and I will have a big batch of soup already made for us to have when we're not feeling great and when you know the kids are like what's for dinner and we're like go eat the thing um but those are some things that that we're doing this week are you doing anything else that I missed I I mean I think the 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 actually the most important thing that I did was not get my booster two weeks ago when I originally planned to because I had a head cold. So um, I wanted my immune system to finish its one job before I gave it another job to do. And I even, you know, at first I decided to postpone one week. And then when one week went by, I went, actually, um, you know, I, I still have too many lingering cold symptoms here. I, I want another week. And so I think that's another just helpful thing to consider. Um, they, the recommendation is that if you want to combine COVID-19 booster with a flu vaccine, that that is okay to do. My, my feeling on this is given how, how unpleasant the side effects were, I had about four days um, from the second shot um, with some lingering joint pain that lasted a few more days after that. Um, so definitely not quite as bad as, as Kate, but, uh, but not, not that far off. Um, and, and again, I'm, 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 I'm going to get my booster because, uh, I consider, I still consider that a good trade. So one thing that I did was not get my booster while I was sick. Um, and then yeah, hydration. I'm also just, you know, I, I had two days um, in bed after the second shot. So I'm just, and then two more really, really tired, lazy days after that. Um, So I'm planning four days worth of meals that are, you know, just reheat and dinner's ready so that I don't need to cook. I won't have meetings. um, And I'm getting my booster on a Friday when I can go into the weekend and my family can take the dog for a walk if I'm not up for it. Um, and then my husband will get his the week after. So we'll, we'll take turns. So that was, that's the other thing is we got our second shots on the same day. And, uh, that is not, as my husband will say, but didn't you enjoy spending all day in bed together? And I'm like, that is not what that means. And no, and no, we're not doing that again. We're definitely taking turns next time because it's hard when you have, you know, kids of, of any age, 
to have both parents out for the count at the same time. So, I mean, he only had a day of symptoms, but still, there was one day where the kids were free range chickens or free range children for the whole day. Um, and they were looking after the dog. So we're, we're going to try to not do that again. So that's, you know, I'm just thinking ahead. Like if my experience with the booster is similar to my second shot, which I'm expecting it to be, and I'm willing to make that trade, what are, what are the things that I, that I need? And I've got shows to watch, book to read. If, if I, you know, I'm not expecting to be able to even focus on reading that first day anyways, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for it. And, um, and I'm hoping I'll be pleasantly surprised and the side effects are not as bad as the second shot, but I'm, I'm preparing for them to be a similar experience. All right. I know we have another question specific to pregnancy and also the children's vaccine approval. So before we dive into that, we're going to acknowledge that we're over an hour already and uh, respect your time and and also how much research went into this for Sarah. So we're going to come back next week and dive into that. And um, it will also allow us to tell you how our boosters went. So yeah. that'll be fun. <laughs> Not actually. <but laughs> it'll be, maybe hopefully it we'll be, be over it. Yes. Maybe, maybe it'll just be like a, we cleared our schedule so we could spend all day in bed, but then we didn't really need to, but then we got to enjoy a day in bed. Maybe that'll be it. Maybe we'll have a lovely story to I share love next your week. positive thinking. So we will be back again next week. Thank you so much. If you um, made it this far, we would love to welcome you to our Patreon community. We are always every episode over there with a bonus episode on patreon.com slash the whole view. And every week, if you want more, if you want to know what we really think about all of this and our personal experiences and all that, that would be the place to get it. Um, and then we have bonus, uh, additional bonuses coming. So if you previously checked out the Patreon and it wasn't a good fit for you, either it was too much or too little, definitely go hop over there because we got good stuff, uh, changes going in. And, um, we love that community. We love being able to connect with you and answer your questions. If you have questions that you want answered on the podcast, that's the place to submit them. So, definitely join our community. We'll be back again next week to answer more questions, um, to, to finish up, hopefully. Um, <laughs> every time we say that, we're like, it doesn't matter how much we knock on wood. We're, uh, unfortunately never seeming able to wrap this up, but, um, for as much as we can to the questions that we have, we'll come back next week. Thanks for listening. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.